Our U.S. military and military veterans are our country's greatest assets. But service comes with a price. Post-traumatic stress is our enemy, and our mission today is Operation Healing Heroes. Hey everyone, it's Jay Garstecki, another edition of the Operation Healing Heroes podcast, where we document the lives of our U.S. military veterans one story at a time. In addition, we provide resources for veterans who are struggling with post-traumatic stress, get the help that they deserve. Be sure to check out Operation Healing Heroes TV show on Discovery Channel, Waypoint TV, Wired to Fish TV, Amazon Prime, and YouTube. Today, we'll be featuring Norman Bissell III, a 10-year Ohio Army National Guard veteran who has dedicated his life to helping heal our heroes battling post-traumatic stress. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Uh, Norman, wanted to say welcome and thank you for uh, for taking the time to share your story with us today. Absolutely, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my honor. Uh, as I mentioned in the opening of the show, um, I understand that you spent ten years in the Ohio Army National Guard from 2004 to 2013. Uh, you're currently a military and family life counselor at Magellan Federal, and uh, you recently returned from a trip to Djibouti in Africa. That sounds pretty interesting, and I I know we're going to get into that stuff. Uh, before we get started, anything you want to share? No, I think uh, you got everything lined up. I, I feel like I'm, you know, when you're in the hearing booth and you're trying not to breathe too heavy and like miss anything, it's <laughs> Hey, really, listen, uh, it's a podcast and uh, people understand it's all natural, man. So <laughs> no worries there. Just relax and have fun and tell us about your life. So uh, I like to start these shows by yeah. giving a bit of a background to the veterans that we're interviewing. Um, I think it's important that people understand, you know, the history because a lot of trauma actually stemmed from childhood. So uh, in many of the Absolutely. instances, right? So. Um, tell us about Norman growing up. What was, where'd you grow up? What was life like? Do you have siblings? That type of thing. Yes. Um, born in Columbus, Ohio, uh, two younger brothers, uh, one of which also, uh, served overseas, uh, army national guard, um, moved out to Plain city out in the corn and, uh, Grew up out there where there's not a whole lot to do other than, you know, kind of smoke pot and tip cows. But I <laughs> uh, graduated from the Ohio State University with my degree in criminology. I was uh, actually first year aero astro engineering and then uh, joined the Army. And I don't want to say they made me stupid, but I changed my degree to criminology to match my uh, military police enlistment. So I uh, graduated with that. And in that process, went to accelerated OCS, and I was one of three candidates to graduate uh, accelerated so that I could go to infantry school and get through the Fort Bennington School for Wayward Boys and get my blue cord and go do cool stuff for the Army. So went forward with that, and 
comparing contrasting enlisted time versus officer time, especially in the guard was interesting because we're in that post nine 11 world, mm-hmm. which is vastly different than the, you know, op tempo we're running now. So even though I was in the national guard, I was constantly ripping and running. Just, it wasn't the one weekend a month, two weekends a year. It was nonstop. Hey, you're going to this training. We got to mobilize for this. We got to set up for that, or we've got to prepare for this next avian bird flu or potential hurricane or natural disaster. Yep. So I spent my entire time trying to get through college and keep up with military requirements because, you know, when they call you for training, college is not the priority. Right. Right. So, so going back though, I was in the guard, but it was a good time. Going, going up, going back to to life though, growing up, uh, give me an idea of what it was like uh, in in Ohio. I mean, give me some stories as far as, uh, Brothers and sisters, siblings, what was the uh, parents like? Was your dad in the military, grandfather, um, any any females yes. in the in the military? Uh, what led you into the military, that type of thing? So, uh, huge lineage of military. Um, both my grandfather served. Uh, dad's side was um, uh, EOD officer, did... Um, who was it? He was a nuke officer hmm. on submarines back in the day. And on mom's side, uh, grandfather was also, you know, serving the army for his time. Uh, lots of family members in each of the different branches. Uh, dad was a military police officer as well, third ID army. Um, so I was surrounded by people in the service and, None of them ever pushed it down our throat, so to speak. It wasn't like we were like brought up to be mm-hmm. military or anything like that. We just all naturally gravitated toward that. Uh, and what point uh, were you in high school, or what did you decide that the military was something that was right for you? So funny story. Aside from having two younger brothers, and we were constantly like beating the crap out of each other, and you know, <laughs> being your typical brothers. Up until I was about 16, 17, I swore I was going to be a pilot, and I still might do it. I'm like fractions of an inch away from getting my pilot's license now in my 30s, but I made it all the way up to um, actually applying for the Naval Academy and taking the AFAST and working on the flight physicals and doing all the cool kids stuff and... I was told that my hip and knee length was too long. And I don't know if that was their cute way of saying, we don't want to do the paperwork or <laughs> what, you know, what the disconnect was, but I, that was the impetus. I to think you're pretty tall. Get, yes. Uh, five foot, 18 and a half, but you know, no one worries about <laughs> half inches up here. So it's, it's one of those things where I could have, but then I would have had to shoehorn myself even into a Chinook cockpit. So right. it's like I ended up enlisting as a military police officer, just like my dad. Um, so 
So your parents that uh, made sense. encouraged it. They weren't uh, obviously coming from the lineage that you came from with everybody being in the military. Your parents uh, didn't discourage you going into the into the military. They encouraged it. Sure. Um, it was 50-50. Uh, my father actually passed from cancer when I was 15. Mm. So I spent a few years going from, I mean, keep in mind, I was like a 290 plus pound lineman as a kid. I was a, I was a chunk of a human, but I could move a truck. Gentle human, eighth grade spelling bee champion level nerd. However, um, I had to teach myself how to run so I could barely cut like whatever it was, 229 pounds to enlist. So I didn't get kicked out of MEPS or set in the fat P program. <laughs> and, um, so dad was never for or against and mom knew I was going, but never like she, she understood the gig. She had lived that life. She understood what it was like to be at Fort McClellan, to be at Fort Stewart, to be, you know, living that life. So, you know, she gave us the best representation that we could understand in our teenage brains before we went and signed the dotted line. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what about, yeah, uh, I mean, what about your father's passing at 15 years old? That had to be, I mean, probably fairly traumatic. I, I know my mom passed when I was nine and, and I don't know that I understood exactly how to process it at the time. I think I was probably too young, but that being said, um, I mean, that had to be at 15. I think you probably have a, a much better understanding of the finality of, of losing a parent or a loved one. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, not that I was like a super emotional kid or anything, but it was kind of weird. I don't want to say I shed my last tear, but I kind of let it all out at his funeral. And then after that, kind of emotionally flatlined. And uh, Dr. Royster nailed it. She loves my analogy of crayons in kind of separating how people associate emotions and feelings where, you know, you're a kid and especially as, you know, boys were like, you know, come equipped with a kid's meal, four color pack of crayons. You got normal and irate and hungry and horny and you don't really have a whole lot beyond that. So um, some of us go to college and get the eight color pack, but you know, realistically, girls have been developing upon the 256 color ultra box with a sharpener ever <laughs> since like age eight. I love it. You know, picking on each other in the playground and learning social skills far beyond what most of us males achieve by age 30 anyway. Yeah, right. So, um, again, uh, you can try to dispute that with science and all the fun research and all that, but that's just the best way I can put it out there in 30 seconds or less. Hey, no problem. I mean, so, that's, a good, that's a good analogy. I like that. I hadn't heard that one before, but I might I, use that one. <laughs> Keep me on here long enough. You're going to hear a bunch of stuff you've never <laughs> heard before. Anyway, um, so I was a natural shoe-in for the military because you get in and it's the same thing, except for out of those four crayons that you're allowed to have. Now you got to suppress that even harder because now you're a private and, you know, emotions are non-essential and not a mission requirement, right? You got to tuck that away and learn how to emotion in different ways. So you can, you know, 
stay on target and, you know, Charlie Mike. So, well, we'll talk. I was was gonna say, we'll talk a little bit about the actual military experience here in just a a few minutes. Anything regarding your childhood that uh, played a significant role that you felt molded you uh, prior to joining the military? Um, I mean, obviously the passing of your dad was, uh, was obviously a big part of, of growing up, I'm sure. But uh, any other losses in your life, whether it be friends or anything like that, that uh, that kind of molded who you were and the person that you became? You know, I I was in that childhood period where we watched the towers fall. Like I was, you know, in high school. Like I just got in, and um getting through that initial period was, you know, it was kind of like my uncle's friends were some of the operators, you know, just the tip of the spear. So they were coming back and not able to talk about anything. Mm -hmm. And if you follow history, these were the guys that were riding into Iraq on horseback, you know, getting shot at and trying not to get blown up coming back with cool scars and stories they couldn't tell. Uh So we didn't really have a good picture on what was going on other than whatever nonsense made it to CNN or, you Uh know, mainstream media. So we weren't, I don't know. I can't say that I was really influenced by what was on TV. We didn't have it all over social media Facebook wasn't what it was then, mm. you know, it was just like, all right, I'm going to go join the army. We're going to go do this thing. Like, so did, would you say it's fair to say that, that 9-11 played a pretty significant uh, role in your decision-making process? It played a part, but I, I don't think it was as severe as later on because as the war drug on, even though the rest of the country was kind of like, hey, can we take these yellow ribbon bumper stickers off our cars now? <laughs> the rest of us that were either going into the military or were already in the military were in the sustained battle. We were losing buddies. It was real. Mm-hmm. And we had to be involved. So this is where a lot of I don't want to say secondary trauma, but we talk a lot about moral injury and survivor's guilt. Uh, When we talk about the military portion, I would say that would be an important part to cover. Um, Even if I had, you know, not really had the tools to deal with any symptoms of PTS that came up from my father that, you know, I didn't know existed or, you know, hadn't, come to fruition yet it definitely came to bear when it all compounded during my military service so that will be an excellent story to tell when we talk about you know how i was an infantry officer and how i was watching mental health not just get ignored but get shoehorned and thrown directly under the bus so well, let's let's talk that about that. I'm going to take a, a 
a quick break here. And as soon as we come back, why don't we talk about uh, your life in the military? Because I think that that's something that obviously plays a significant role in your life. I think it was uh, an interesting part of this whole story that you're going to be telling. So let me take a quick break. As soon as we get back, we will talk about uh, life in the military for Norman. Hang on one second. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com. And we're back with Norman Bissell III. Uh, Norman, again, thanks for sharing uh, your story with us in, in childhood, uh, painting a really good picture of exactly what life was like and what led you into the military. And now it's time to talk about life in the military. So um, I know this is the part you, you signed up for as far as uh, this podcast goes. So why don't <laughs> let's start about, uh, you know, tell us about life in the military. I mean, what are some of the most memorable moments that you had from your military career and at what point did you decide it was time to get out of the military? So, so I enlisted January of '04, and um, became a military police officer in the guard, which was interesting because you would think that you would just like kind of go in and get through college and do your thing, but we were in the heart of being in limbo, not knowing we were going into limbo. So it was a lot of hurry up and wait, mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, deployments that never happened, getting stood up and stood down to Kosovo, to Germany, to Iraq, to Afghanistan, um, always training, always going to schools, always being on call, always preparing for the next natural disaster, always preparing for avian bird flu or whatever the thing was we were constantly preparing for the next event, not knowing whether or not we would actually be selected to go. So, um, again, like I was talking about earlier, I, you know, went to the Ohio state university, uh, declared myself as an aeronautical astronautical engineering major to join and then change over to criminology. So I could, you know, be an MP and a super cop and all that kind of cool stuff. Maybe work for a three letter brigade one day. And then quickly realized that degree I was getting wasn't so much for law enforcement, but so that I could go to accelerated OCS, get my bar, go become an infantry officer. Um, And that enlisted time, we talked earlier about, you know, kind of being emotionally flatlined, mm-hmm. which is great when you're like E1 to E4. You can make it to about specialist, maybe sergeant nowadays being, you know, you know, I am hard, you know, emotions aren't necessary, you know, shut up, ruck up, drive on. And, you know, it makes you top PT um, expert shooter, all that cool kid stuff. But then at some point you have to learn how to add some emotional quotient or some emotional intelligence into your game. Otherwise you become that NCO or in my case, you become that officer that's like, well, 
I didn't marry a stripper and have 15 illegitimate love puppies. You should probably come up with a plan for that. That's not my responsibility. And it sounds heartless, because it kind of is, but, you know, you're still figuring out that, you know, mission first people always usually airs on the side of mission first. So if you don't have that emotional intelligence, you don't know how to scale back and tone down and be a human when you need to and actually take care of your Joes and Josies and whatnot. So um, I was going through my career in the infantry, um, going through XO all the way through, you know, S3, you know, operations time. And the units that I uh, was attached to were constantly getting stood up, stood down. We'd mobilize the entire infantry brigade combat team and then only send three to 600 forward. So it was kind of a mismatch of, oh, hey, we need to go to these schools. We need to do this train up. No, you don't get to go to cool schools. (laughs) Screw airborne. You're going to... UMO training or hazmat and you're like, that sucks, but all right, I'll do it. Cause you know, it, uncle Sam owns you. You can't really right. argue. You right. signed up for this scout and country time. So, uh, again, kept up, you know, extended PT scores and cool kid stuff. And, you know, I, again, I'll talk about that when I went to Djibouti. I apparently, I still do that, but, I hit this point of you're constantly being stood up and stood down. Uh, I hit this point of I would have had like 15 mobilization ribbons and no actual deployments at that stage of my career. So we were constantly training up to go nowhere. And I was committed to playing Army, which makes it extremely hard to get planted in a career. So as I was going through my uh, officer time, what I noticed is a lot of my soldiers were getting hypermedicated, what I would consider hypermedicated, for basic routine mental health problems. Everyone deals with childbirth. Everybody deals with divorce. You know, a lot of people deal with these just life instances that to the individual in the moment are grave. You know, we're all humans. It's like, we're all made of, you know, we're all snowflakes, but we're all made of water. Right. Mm-hmm. So to the individual, it seems like a grave event, but in the scope of humanity, you're not the first person to go through this and that's okay. We've got you. So, um, so were yeah, most of these, was, these guys that you were training or, or some of your soldiers, were they, had they been deployed before and they were back uh, before they went for another deployment or was this just fresh coming into the military that you're seeing this? It was a mix of both. Okay. So what I learned was that if you were able to bulletproof your relationship, whether you're married or together or whatever your case may be, if you were able to put in the legwork, and get everything going um, before you left, you would come home to a strong relationship. But if your relationship was on the rocks before you left, 
I know what the Disney movies say, but time apart does not really make the heart grow fonder. So again, all these issues that could have been simple counseling interventions, we didn't know that at the time because we all thought we were like, you know, you're a commander or you're a first sergeant or whatever. All of your soldiers' problems eventually become your problems anyway. And you're hoping it doesn't, you know, go to a full-blown 15-6 investigation. Mm -hmm. So it's when, when you see everyone reaching out for help and they're just told, hey, here's some pills, get back in the fight. Some of them weren't even deployed yet. They were still in like pre-mobilization and they were still, you know, it's like, oh, here's some Wellbutrin and Lexapro, figure it out. Huh. Here's some Paxil, good luck. And that was a nice way of saying, you know, hey, if you can't figure it out, you're going home. Mm-hmm. So I went through and I was like, okay, I've got a degree in criminology, which is the science of why stupid people do stupid things. Uh, <laughs> Why people have sex with pinatas and why banks have, you know, one entry and one exit, all kinds of useless information. And the good thing about it is it's based in social and behavioral science. And in that is a solid foundation for becoming a mental health counselor. So went to Capella, got my 4.0, um, took a whole bunch of classes over because internet is my problem. So even though I was mobilizing for Afghanistan for the third time, uh, I couldn't turn a paper in because, you know, whatever uh, camp fluff or nutter didn't have internet at the time. That's my problem, not the schools. So I missed out on summa cum laude. Hmm. So far, no one's noticed. <laughs> um, but uh, I decided to get out after 10 years, technically nine years, 11 months, and a whole bunch of days. But I had to hang up my hat because that is your responsibility as a leader. When your boots get too heavy or you know you're no longer going to be good to those you're in charge of, you have to hang up your hat. And I hit this point of I'm not making a career. I'm not trying to, you know, hit major lieutenant colonel and out at this rate. And I was like, I got to get my degree and I got to move on. So um, got out in end of 2013, uh, finally wrapped up my master's and went through my intern years, uh, working through, uh, community mental health, working alongside VA, HUD VASH programs, doing all kinds of cool stuff, working in private practice, uh, just really learning what mental illness looks like, you know, and that's across the board. And then learning the nuances. So not just learning what shows, you know, what shows up in your office, but how did they come to be? Mm-hmm. So when you talk about childhood and you talk about all of that, you actually pay attention from zero to three months. That little baby, that hippocampal region of their brain is rapidly developing. So not even looking at in vitro, you know, you just came out. You're already looking whether you're in a fight flight environment or you're in an open learning, caring environment. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to see that present until 
you see the kids that are doing great in kindergarten versus the ones that are running playpen fight club in preschool. <laughs> That's where it started. Yep. And then you see it continue to develop. That attention is still good attention, right? So that class clown just wants attention. Yep. If the kid can't get attention for doing great things, they're going to get attention for drawing on the walls and then, you know, smashing TVs and stuff. Yep. Beating up other kids. So you see that development across the lifespan. You see that critical period around, you know, age eight or nine, sometimes a little bit earlier, where that top brain, prefrontal cortex, starts not just firing, but actually wiring together. That's where we get our critical thinking skills, our ability to reason, cross time zones, and assign meaning, right? It's what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom plus an opposable thumb and a couple other digits. So when that finally occurs, right, that's where we talk about, ah, that four-colored kids meal pack of crayons starts rapidly developing for, you know, most girls. And, you know, boys are kind of left behind. We're still, uh, we can, you know, rip your arm off on the playground, but we'll leave you intact as a human being. And this is where you're going to catch a lot of the problems yeah. you're going to see the ones who yeah. had absent parents earlier in life you're going to see uh, the ones whose parents weren't available or were abusive or wherever the disconnect is this is setting the stage um and we, you can see it once everybody's in the military yeah, before we get too deep into because I want to hear all about those things, because that's pretty, I mean, it's interesting, the stuff that you've gone through since your military career. But I want to I want to take a, a short break here. And then when we come back, I, I want to talk specifically about uh, reintegration, because I know that that's uh, terribly difficult for a lot of our veterans to reintegrate after uh, 10 years in the service. And then also I want to talk about some of the, the experiences that you've seen, you know, talking to some of these veterans and some of these other individuals. So take a short break. We'll be right back. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Healing Wave Aquatics. The mission of Healing Wave Aquatics is to support individual wellness and management of complex stress through aquatic therapy. We provide a research-based aquatic therapy program to military and veterans who have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress through an eight-week program. The therapy uses the property of water, including warmth, buoyancy, and fluid movements to help veterans heal from physical, mental, and other traumas and medical conditions. This treatment thoroughly stretches, expands, and supports the spine and body while promoting a sense of peace and relaxation so complete that the recipient tends to surrender and release tensions that enable the body and mind to move beyond the limitations that gravity or fear would otherwise impose. Visit www.healingwaveaquatics.org for more information. We're back with uh, Norman Bissell. Uh, Norm, thanks again for taking the time to uh, talk to us today and talk to us about your military career. And uh, I do want to talk about all the things that you've accomplished since you've been out of the military. I think it's pretty important stuff. Uh, I know that you've, I mean, just in, in talking to you for the last 10, 15 minutes, you talked about a lot of the different things as it related to childhood trauma, those types of things. Um, if you don't mind, kind of pick up where you left off and and 
What are some of the things that you've seen as far as the different forms of therapy? I know you talked about adventure therapy and things like that, but uh, what are some of the things that you've you found out about? Sure. Um, I was talking about when I was an officer, I saw that, you know, uh, pharmacological interventions were primary. That was your way to keep people in the fight, uh, throw some pills at it, hopefully they figure it out. Um, what we learned was, you know, uh, you know, pills aren't always the problem. You know, if you use them with counseling interventions and use therapy to help get that person out of their rut, build up their toolbox and, you know, help them move on with their lives, then they can be very effective. But if you don't, okay, well, you're lifting the ruck off their shoulders that's gotten really heavy over the course of life, whether it occurred in childhood whether it occurred, you know, during service or it occurred during the deployment, once the pills lose efficacy or once they discontinue that medication, well, that ruck falls squarely back on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. So if no one teaches you this stuff, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of people that are coming in unequipped to deal with the stressors of not only military life, but then deployment life and deployment life specific to where you're going. Because there's a huge difference between getting deployed to Camp Cupcake versus, you know, RC South or, you know, going straight to Sangin or whatever. So we could break it down to all the different demographic factors, not just branch and MOS or, you know, what you did in the military, but there are a lot of protective factors that can occur in childhood. You know, sometimes your parents weren't nice people and that actually raises your bar for stupidity, which kind of makes you an all-star in the military. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you still have to, um, you know, once you become an adult, it's not your fault that was your upbringing, but now you have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So, again, you can go on pills and then take more pills for the side effects and go down that rabbit hole. Or you can build up your tools and you can sort it out. And, you know, we can do that relatively quickly nowadays. It's not like you have to treat it like diabetes, you know post-traumatic stress is going to occur, whether you're in the military, you're a first responder, you're a doc, you're a nurse, uh, you could be a dental hygienist, I don't know, right? mm-hmm. whatever. There's all kinds of walks of life that are going to experience post-traumatic stress. Us as clinicians have to decide, is it a disorder or is this something that can be healed? Yep. Because the common thing, you're talking about modalities, right? The treatment modalities, a lot of the evidence-based practices that are still in use today, I witnessed while I was out uh, overseas, were prolonged exposure, right? All of these old-school therapies that, yes, they are evidence-based. However, um, they can reduce the intrusive symptoms, but, you know, you still kind of feel like crap about your trauma. Mm-hmm. Right? It's still traumatic. We're, we're still having to address the root of the problem. And where you look at 
cognitive behavioral therapies. That's the gold standard. That's what we all learn coming up. And there's all kinds of different flavors. I've been trained in cognitive behavioral therapy for everything from trauma focus through psychosis for insomnia. You name it. There's all kinds of different flavors. Um, again, it addresses the cognitive. We talked about top brain, prefrontal cortex. It addresses that side of the house. But again, we're still working on the experiential nodes. We're looking at bottom brain, hippocampal region, or procedural memory. Fight, flight, freeze, fold. Mm -hmm. Without turning it into a tech talk, that is your sports plays, your battle drills. Don't touch hot stove. Don't whiz on the electric fence. Don't date redheads. Whatever your thing is, it's, you know, that mechanism for stupid hurts. And it's the part of the brain that's responsible for trying to keep you safe. Where the trauma piece comes from is when the brain is trying to keep you safe from something that no longer exists. Right. So you're talking about that's that when, threat that no longer exists. And so therefore, but you still have right. the, you still have the memories of it. You still have that reaction. The emotional so even though your buddy got exploded in Afghanistan, you're still holding on to that. Mm -hmm. Or you went out on that call or you lost that person. I mean, I probably do more trauma work for animals because Floofy, your puppy or your horse never called you fat, mm -hmm. never threw you under the bus, right? So it hurts much more when an animal dies and say a grandparent you know, it sounds kind of right? no no but you're you're right on i mean it's, uh, that's what occurs is you lose this piece and you know we can talk about all different brain chemicals lack of oxytocin uh cuddle drug and the trust molecule a lack of it wants to call a loved one home and such but that's what occurs when you feel lost and then brain puts in the protective factors to make sure that never happens again right so this is where the trauma response occurs. And depending on where that happens in the person's lifespan, we can tie that into military. We can tie that into later adulthood. You mentioned transitioning out of the military, right? So we talked about being emotionally flatlined for 10, 20, sometimes 30 years, right? Because emotions are non-essential. And now you get kicked back out into the civilian world where, no offense, and I experienced this as well, hey, you were in command of over 600 people and, you know, billions of dollars worth of equipment, but you can't manage two hipsters at a Starbucks, so, you know, sorry, we can't get you a job at whatever, Bed Bath & Beyond, it doesn't matter. Right. So it's like we appreciate your military service. No one ever really craps on you, at least not in my experience. There are some places that do, but... You shouldn't be trying to get in where you can't fit in. Right. So what ends up happening is they're like, yeah, congratulations. You did all this time in the military, but you didn't do that time here. Like you could be a two-star general in the army, but then you try to hop over to the Department of State and work in the Foreign Service. And they're like, yeah, we're, we're not just going to give you two-star status over here. You didn't earn that yet. You know what I mean? You're, we're not just going to make you a manager or we're not going to give you this important title, even though it's equivalent to where you came out of the military. You still got to put your boots on ground time in with your new organization that you try to transition to. Yep. And, and a lot and, of veterans don't understand that. 
one of the things that, you know, obviously uh, we hear a lot as, as it relates to veterans trying to transition out of the military is just, you know, like you said, 10 years of, uh, I don't know, uh, regimented work. And, and like you said, if you did deploy and you were out in, in you know, in the battlefield or combat field, and then you come back, I mean, it's that sense of purpose, right? There's almost like, there's not a job sure. in domestically here that could give you the sense of purpose. And I guess you could argue the point of, you know, a police officer or a firefighter or something like that. But I mean, there's not many jobs that are going to give you the sense of purpose that you had in the military. And I think that's where a lot of the struggle comes from. Right. So, I mean, how, how do how can veterans uh, that are listening to this show that, that are probably struggling with that right now, how can they get help with something like that? What I can tell you is I've spent a lot more time trying to help people find the job of their dreams. Um, Cause once you clear the trauma, then you've unleashed all that extra brain power and energy inertia, whatever you want to call it toward getting what you want instead of avoiding what you don't. So what happens is you have a lot of people who are separating from the military. They were phenomenal at their jobs. But what's happened is they're not transitioning directly into a similar job. It's not like they worked on airplanes for the VMM their entire career, and then they were hopping out and doing the exact same thing for Northrop Grumman or some mm-hmm. you know, high-line defense contractor for four times the money in a quarter of the hours. So what ends up happening is they come out, And they're used to being held to a high standard. And then they come out and they expect themselves out of others. And that's probably one of the most difficult things to understand in transition is that you can't expect you out of someone else. They don't have your experience. They don't have your training. They don't have your drive. They don't have your ability. So they go to work at Lowe's and they wonder why they're the hardest working person on the entire floor. They wonder why no one can keep up with them. And then it creates friction. And God forbid they get fired mm-hmm. because, hey, man, you're doing way too much. Like, you're, you're, you're at 11. We need you at about a three. You got you to gotta tone it down, boss. Like, there are a lot of people that struggle in civilian life because you can't keep that full-bore mentality in a lot of these job fields. Yep. There's a couple where you can, you know, there's, there are professions out there that are better suited than others, but across the board, if just in the general family sense, whether you have a significant other or 40 cats in a fern, if you take that blade hand that you use as a soldier, an NCO or what have you, and you bring that home with you, oh, why aren't the dishes done? Why do your grades suck? Mm-hmm. Ah, yep. You're going to be viewed as a terrible parent, right? Yep. So let's let's talk you're about that. A lot of friction in let's talk about that more because you you said uh, a little while ago about you can detach the emotion from the trauma, and I think uh, that's part of. We had Dr. Janelle Royster on the show. Um, she was our first podcast, yes. actually, and um, and talked about trip therapy and how uh, you know how the advancements that we've made over the last, you know, I don't know, several five, six, eight, ten 10 years uh, with being able to prove that we can detach the emotion from the trauma, which um, 
basically makes tomorrow better than today for all of us that, that have experienced any trauma or PTS. Sure. Um, I've noticed that a lot of service members have actually sought out help and have left wanting because their clinician, whether a social worker, psychologist, the military, especially DOD, is still working on getting licensed professional counselors and marriage and family therapists on board. Fortunately, we just got the compact signed so we can accept Medicare, RB, but it'll be a process before, you know, federally counselors are recognized. So what this means is a lot of service members go in, they try to bring their families into therapy and they get told, oh yeah, you know, you had some bad stuff happen to you and you're going to have it for the rest of your life. But the best we can do is to make it hurt less. And we're all sitting back here like, you know, what can be learned can be unlearned. Mm-hmm. Something happened to you, but it doesn't have to define you. And I've got all kinds of, you know, terrible colloquialisms and all kinds of other stuff to describe it. However, the fact of the matter is that a lot of clinicians to this day still view it like diabetes. And it's not the fact. It's not even like a broken bone that you have to really set together and heal. It's just something that, you know, we look at worldview. Like, you know, most children are born with what we consider rose-tinted lenses, right? And throughout your existence on this planet, they start to look more like stained church glass windows. You know, stuff happens. But once we teach people that you can change the way you view things and you can adapt the way that your brain tells your body to respond to things, we can take that procedural memory break it loose, break that adrenaline coat off of it or whatever keeps it set as something trying to keep you safe and just make it another memory. Put it up in long-term storage with the rest of the stuff where it belongs, you know, with all your times tables and stuff you learned in school and all the other things that you don't get that visceral hit, you know, in your nervous system when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Punch in the gut. It, yeah, once you see it, it's insanely simple. But until you wrap your mind around it, it sounds foreign and complex. So, again, what can be learned can be unlearned. It's really focusing on what you want instead of avoiding what you don't. And once you help people grasp on, it is a really quick run. And once you break loose all that stuff that was holding you back, then instead of, oh, man, I got to spend all my days working at this random job I hate. It's like, no, man, you could have been an underwater basket weaver. We could have had you delivering pizzas in a scuba suit to Dr. Deturi while he's undersea, you know, like you can do that. You've spent all this time in the military. You've got these cool kid clearances. You've got this experience. We can help you fine tune your resume, your experience, your et cetera, and turn you into an all-star, but you don't know what you don't know. And with just a little bit of fine tuning, we can turn you into a monster, but there's only so many of us. And, you know, yep. we try not to be hard to find, but you know, at the end of the day, we can't do it for you. You got to come find us. Right. So, well, that being said, it was explained to me kind of, 
in layman's terms that our brains are hard drives, right? And it writes, sights, smell, taste, sounds, those types of things to the hard drive when trauma happens. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it harbors all that information. Okay. And so basically uh, after that, you know, those are the things that trigger us and bring back the PTS. And, and so what can be learned can be unlearned. And that's what you said. You know what I mean? Uh, what can be yes. learned can be unlearned. And, and we just, you've proven it. And uh, now it's it's time to go out there and get the help that uh, that's out there and available to you. So that being said, what are some of the uh, organizations that you're affiliated with where if someone's listening and says, hey, it's time for me to go get some help. How do I get help? What, what are those? Uh, how do they get in touch with uh, with you to get that healing? So the easiest way to get connected is through Semper Modus. Uh, that's easiest way to find me. And that's just SemperModusLLC.com. Um, you can Google us. It's not too difficult to find. Uh, you can generally find me, Norman Bissell. I'm everywhere. Uh, have all kinds of crap posting on social media and all kinds of other nonsense. I try not to be too difficult to get a hold of. And we're also in network with Project Vet Relief through the American Legion. Um, I'm working through all kinds of different organizations to get set up with Silky's Hikes through Irreverent Warriors and Florida for Warriors. We're doing um, all kinds of outdoor experiential therapy through all kinds of different organizations to the point where Whatever you prefer, we can find a retreat to get you set up. We can get you playing with horses. If you really want, we can get you, you know, mounted shooting like a real cowboy on horseback. Like it's as ridiculous as you want to go. Fishing trips, scuba trips, um, jumping out of perfectly good airplanes, (laughs) whatever it is to your level of ability that you need to get your mind right and get to the, that next stage in your world, we can do it. And it's amazing how far we've come in such a short amount of time to be able to provide these services essentially at no cost to veterans. So I'm really excited to see what the future holds, not just in terms of providing counseling and therapy, but actually putting it out in ways that make sense, whether you, do yoga or yoga freaks you out. So you prefer, you know, physical rehab or, you know, uh, it's all stretching, whatever it is. You know, we talk about whether it's transcendental meditation or you're going through all seven levels of alpha three theta brainwave activity on the EEG machine. It all feels the same to the nervous system. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to achieve the same results. And I think one of the best ones, I already mentioned Project Vet Relief, I think is the one out there doing the most. Whether you need to get connected with other veterans, you want to get out on a motorcycle, you need to go spend some time at the ranch, whatever it is that you need to do to get your mind right, uh, get centered, figure out what's going on, which way is up, how to address your trauma, how to hit that next step. We will definitely get you taken care of. So I really appreciate you giving me the time to put all that out there and yeah, hopefully be slightly entertaining. Absolutely. Well, 
Hey, I appreciate you mentioning that. We're going to take uh, a short break, but when we come back, I was hoping that maybe you would share. Um, you just got back from a, a trip to Djibouti, and uh, I I have to hear about that. I mean, not not many people I know. Well, I don't sorry. know of anybody that has ever said I've gone on a trip to Djibouti, Africa. So uh, we're going to take a short break. As soon as we come back, we'll hear about your trip to uh, Djibouti. This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Healing Wave Aquatics. The mission of Healing Wave Aquatics is to support individual wellness and management of complex stress through aquatic therapy. We provide a research-based aquatic therapy program to military and veterans who have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress through an eight-week program. The therapy uses the property of water, including warmth, buoyancy, and fluid movements to help veterans heal from physical, mental, and other traumas and medical conditions. This treatment thoroughly stretches, expands, and supports the spine and body while promoting a sense of peace and relaxation so complete that the recipient tends to surrender and release tensions that enable the body and mind to move beyond the limitations that gravity or fear would otherwise impose. Visit www.healingwaveaquatics.org for more information. And we're back with uh, Norman Bissell III. Norman, thanks again for sharing your story with us. And uh, before the break, we we talked about uh, a lot of the different modalities that that you are aware of that uh, these veterans can can seek out to try and find uh, some help with their post traumatic stress. Um, I know you just got back from a trip to uh, Djibouti, Africa. Um, you got to tell me about that. Okay, so um, when I was here in Florida, I was working with local law enforcement here in central Florida, all the way through um, different fire stations, EMTs, docs, nurses, just whatever degree of first responder through Florida Department of Law Enforcement, FBI, all kinds of cool kid teams and um, assessment and management of threats, uh, behavioral health interventions, crisis negotiation, all that cool kid stuff. And I had an opportunity to do military and family life counseling. They offered a three to six month tour and I opted for the one year tour to make sure that I could actually like go over and have an impact. So I was originally scheduled to go out to UAE and hit a different Air Force base and the contract changed over and they selected Djibouti. So Heading out to Camp Lemonier in Africa, I was able to spend a year out there doing non-medical counseling. So just basic interventions, helping people stay in the fight, doing the day-to-day stuff. And if anybody needed more than two or three sessions, which no one I had did, um, I was able to address all of my clients' concerns in a handful of sessions or less, usually one or two. And, but I had the availability to coordinate with behavioral health officers and their teams across all service branches. So seeing how everyone falls under the same DOD instruction or DOD, everyone has their own interpretation. Uh, Army uses a different, you know, COSR model as opposed to the Navy ZEOS model. Air Force resilience and, you know, Marine Corps falls under the Navy. So even the Space Force that was out there somewhere hmm. cannot confirm or deny. 
but everybody utilized me as that safety net so that I could help sort out. Do you need to go talk to the chaplain? Do you need to talk to a psychologist? Do you need to get connected? Do we need to consider higher levels of care, which, you know, in this case, it's Camp Lemonier. You know, you're in the Horn of Africa. People don't realize, yes, it's a combat deployment. However, on camp, there's two green bean coffee shops and a plant smoothie, and it's 24-7 access along with a pizza hut and a subway. So when you're on camp, yes, it's a deployment. No, it's not like your WWOIF 23 and a third deployment to Iraq or Afghanistan, depending on where you went. But for the most part, it wasn't Afghan 2.0. It was kind of like Arif John. So when you were talking earlier about, you know, were they a first-time deployer? Was it their second deployment? That's where you could really tease apart. Say you're in a new relationship or just had a new baby or something ridiculous happened. Your first deployment's kind of new and novel. It can make you or break you, but you really don't know what to expect. Or the second deployment, you kind of know exactly what to expect. Uh-huh. And it kind of makes it worse. So what ends up happening is the majority of my clients weren't the second and third time deployers. They were either the first time deployers that were just figuring it out, or they were the senior most individuals, the ones that might be on their third marriage, or they finally hit that point where they see that they're ready to transition into civilian life. And they realized all the events that they missed with their kids and now they want to be better parents and they want to connect with their teenagers and they want to figure out how to make sense of the madness. So while I was able to identify and treat those stressful events, um, a lot of it was drawing that fine line between non-medical counseling and referring up uh, post-traumatic stress, where I was able to toe that line very well, because some people would show up with maybe a PTS reaction, but nothing requiring significant intervention. So it was appropriate to handle at my level, or I could at least, you know, acknowledge with an agreed upon person, usually a behavioral health officer, so that if anything did get too deep, they knew they were safe to go and address it with an actual provider in a way that wasn't going to fry their career. Because there has always been a huge stigma in the military about mental health making you non-deployable or taking you off of deployment. So a lot of people are really afraid to approach. I, I swore I was like a super secret spy guy, you know, meeting up with some of the Marines, especially some of the pilots, like, hey, man, no one can see us. And you're like, no, really, it's okay. <laughs> like, I swear, I'm not going to I'm not gonna get your flight status pulled or they're not going to take your weapon. It's going to be okay. So they so, thought because they would potentially be seen talking to you that they would uh, be deemed as as not being whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, because with, if you're a, a line item, you know, soldier, sailor, airman, marine, guardian, or spatial forces are called, um, 
they see you go into behavioral health or they see you go into a provider, they're automatically, what's wrong with him? Mm-hmm. What's wrong with him? Da, 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 da. What, what are they doing over there? They're going over to the care square. What's, what's up with that? Mm-hmm. And they're automatically marking that person like, are they going to be a liability? Are they going to jack up this flight? Are they going to screw up this operation? So that stigma is still alive and well. And I've had to actually help a lot of other providers get through that stigma because it is extremely frustrating when you're fighting your butt off to serve these populations and they're still coming at you sideways because every new unit that rips in, you've got to start from square one with them too. You've got to build that rapport. You've got to let them know what you're worth and you've got to let them know that you're actually going to care for them and not throw them under the bus. So... I spent a lot of time out in Africa, not just advocating for mental health and uh, helping people fix whatever it was, you know, the dumpster fire of a life they left back home and didn't realize they needed to work on. Um, they wanted to get a new job. They wanted to get that next rank, rate, job, what have you. I could sit each individual down or I could set an entire group up. Um, I can stop by the shop and help everyone get their lives together. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you don't need financial counseling. Oh, Hey, you bought a Camaro at 36% interest. Cool. We're going to go talk to fleet and family. They're going to teach you how to get out of that hole. Uh Um, Like everything, every, every life issue that everyone thinks is unique and special. We've got answers for. That's pretty And, it's it, no one knows it exists. That's that's the beauty of it. Well, I don't know if it's a guard and reserve thing or, you know, active duty knows the service exists, but they don't know what the service is capable of. So they just avoid it. I'll figure it out. They'll go to PNN or private news network and ask local, you know, whatever barracks lawyer for their opinion on how to get out of their situation. Of course, you get what you pay for, which is nothing. Yep. So, you know, it, the system continues. We, we joke about it. ever since Washington crossed the Delaware and, you know, the first infantryman married a bar wench and bought a horse cart at 36% interest and had a litter of illegitimate love puppies, you know, so say the Army. But stuff hadn't changed much. Interesting. Um, so I know that uh, yeah, I, Dr. Royster shared with me some of the stories that you had there, and I, I understand, obviously, being in Africa, um, some interesting stories. Uh, let's talk about some of the, the fun part of the deployment, if there was such a thing. Like, uh, I understand you had a pet mongoose. I did. I, uh, I had all kinds of pets out there. We Not as many giraffes as one might think. We had one out the decan range, but... Lots of camels. Uh, I had a mongoose. You don't choose the mongoose. The mongoose chooses you, just in case anybody's wondering. Looks like a really furry weasel squirrel. You know, I guess go to Google and see your interpretation. I don't think I had like a massive one. He was kind of a cute little guy. He ended up becoming the uh, care team mascot, which the care team was the amalgamation of all the behavioral health assets on camp, as well as uh, USO, Red Cross, chaplains, other service providers, MWR, 
anyone who had a vested interest in helping out service members all kind of came together for the care team. So we actually got a lot accomplished in breaking down silos and getting all the different branches and all the different elements to come together and accomplish things, which is phenomenal. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, at Mongoose, uh, we had, they weren't parrots, but they were like a close cousin. They hung out uh, at the lighthouse where the, you know, generals and other high-ranking officials sleep, so people would walk by and try to teach you swear words. <laughs> I don't know how effective that was. Um, there were a bunch of cats that everyone tried to rehome, which is not in accordance with UCMJ, so you will get an Article 15, and you will get slapped for trying to rehome the cats. Uh, there were a couple, they weren't dogs, might have been hyenas, they didn't really respond to humans. I don't think anybody actually went to go pet them. <laughs> When you got to the outstations, like in Kenya and uh, Moog and stuff, you had all kinds of orangutans. Uh, we had some bonobos. Uh, we had a really good time. The uh, can't call them alpha males. They're like the lead breeding male or whatever, the head of the pack. He His, his lady uh, loved getting dressed up. Somebody got her a tutu or some Disney princess outfit, and she loved it. But um, I can neither confirm or deny if the Marines may or not have tried to put a T-shirt on the uh, lead breeding male, and he was not a fan. So a uh, a Marine may or may not have gotten his arm broken and refriended to Germany. So good times. <laughs> oh no! I got to give him a good award. That's awesome. Trying to dress up so huh? this podcast. I owe him one. <laughs> yes. Props. I, we, we all agreed, and anyone who's ever done any sort of like interaction with wildlife or spent some time in the uh, wilderness is like, yeah, there's uh, there's lots of animals that I would definitely uh, square up with, and that's not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm, I'm a pretty big dude. You know, I'm over six and a half foot tall. You know, generally semi you know, muscular, and I still. I, I I'd put up a good fight for maybe two minutes, and after that, I'm pretty sure that. That band's going to kick my ass. So, <laughs> love it. So, you can bleep that out. No worries. Uh, so, talk to me about Dr. Detori. We had him on the show. Uh, he's He's got a podcast that we did just a couple, a week or two ago. And uh, I understand he's going to be doing Project Neptune 100. He's going undersea for uh, hopefully it is going to be 100 days. He's going to live uh, about 22 feet under the sea. Um, I think it's out of Key Largo, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, and uh, yes. you're going to be part of that? So we don't have anything official yet, so I can't speak for Dr. Duterte. All I can say is that while he is underwater, um, both Dr. Royster and I are practitioners in trauma recovery intervention protocol, or TRIP. So we are... Uh, absolutely adept, not just as a diplomat in my field and all that other 20 acronyms after my name that no one cares about, but we can help set the stage, get clients squared away, do all of the therapeutic interventions so that when Dr. Duturi returns after, I don't know, setting world records and uh, doing 140-odd podcasts and whatever else. Like, he's going to be an absolute rock star. Not that he isn't already. He's a mad scientist. And yeah, he is. Maybe one day when I grow up, I'll be just like him. But 
we're going to cover down and make sure that everyone is taken care of and everything is squared away while he is undersea. Got it. And when I talked about taking veterans to do scuba dives, you know, we have the hyperbaric oxygen chambers and I just did an eight minute ice bath, which I don't know if anyone in your audience has ever done that before. If you ask me to go jump into an icy bath, I, I grew up in Ohio. I, you know, played in the snow as a kid. And this is a different beast. Um, <laughs> strongly recommend it. So there are lots of ways to not only uh, address and identify, but start rectifying the effects of not just traumatic brain injury, but all of the effects of service. We, uh, we categorize it as RSCBE or repetitive subconcussive blast exposure. And it's not necessarily any one big boom, but all the years of the little booms, the door mm-hmm. charges, the flashbangs, the shoulder fired munitions, all the little stuff, all the combatives, training Brazilian jiu-jitsu, getting your block knocked off in training events, uh, it all tends to add up. And especially if you are still drinking, drugging, not in a good way, uh, maybe not in a good place in life, not having healthy relationships, it all compounds upon each of the added effects. Mm -hmm. So again, we look at the whole human to help figure out, okay, where are you at? What do you appreciate? Where are you trying to be? So, wow, again, Dr. Deturi, I can't steal a show from him. Um, while he's out there playing 20,000 leagues under the sea and doing great things for the good of humanity, uh, we will be carrying the weight above the surface and making sure that everybody gets squared away. So anything we can do to reinforce the fact that, A, you're not alone, B, we've got you covered, and C, wherever you're at, or how grave your situation may be, we'll help you figure it out. And if we can't do it, we'll definitely find someone who can. There's always somebody out there. This is a team event. This is not an individual approach. Amen. So, yep. Well, that, that was one of the, the next questions I was actually going to ask you is, you know, what would you say to a veteran or a family member who's listening to this show, who's currently struggling with post-traumatic stress, may not know where to turn, uh, you know, his wakes up and struggles every day, uh, what would you say to those individuals? How, how do they, how do they cope with tomorrow? The, the fact is that the problem didn't happen overnight. It's not going to necessarily get solved overnight, but we have a lot of people in place that are bending over backwards to make sure that again, you're not alone. And this isn't the end. Yep. You know, sometimes your brain is fighting you. Sometimes there are physical problems. Other times it does make sense. You really feel like there's no other way out. Yeah. And this is why we talk about in regard to mental health, we don't need more awareness. We don't need more resilience, you know, yep. 
And I think that as practitioners, as clinicians, we're starting to educate each other. But when you put that information out to the general populace, it's not a widespread message. We're still figuring out that, oh, okay, congratulations. You just dumped a bucket of ice on your head or you did 22 push-ups. Now what? Mm-hmm. Call your buddy. Do something. What are you doing to be a better human? What are you doing to render buddy aid? Sure, you know how to slap on a tourniquet or you know how to return fire. Or, you know, you've been jerking off a platoon for 20 years and you can't wait for somebody, you know, stick you up in a bank somewhere. But what are you doing in your day-to-day to help other humans? What are you doing to not just bulletproof yourself? The, the number one key is to save yourself. Mm-hmm. Just like being in an airplane, when the oxygen drops, you got to save yourself before you can save others. So you can't fill up anyone else's cup if yours is empty. Amen. And once you figure that out, once you're above water, even if you're just treading water, that's fine. There are enough of us out there. We're going to scoop you up. We're going to get you figured out. Very good. So trust the process. Understand. We will get you taken care of one way or another. So, what yeah, uh, you can edit all that as much as you need to, or bleep it out. No, no, I mean that's it. that's all good stuff. I mean, you're 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 right to the point. You know what I mean? You can't help others until you help yeah. yourself, and and part of it is just admitting that you need the help, right? I mean, it's it's doing that that soul diving and soul searching and saying, hey, I. I've been struggling sure. long enough. I need to. I need to finally enlist somebody who may know a little bit more than I do to go get the help and find the help that I need. And it's out there. Um, it's out there. So, what would any parting words? What do, What do you want to say as far as uh, wrapping up the show? I think I've covered everything. It's don't wait until you know you roll down the window in your truck and you can't hear your significant other in the passenger seat next to you. It's not your hearing it's not your stuff your your brain's coming so we've had so many opportunities to literally save lives not just with trip not just with dives not with horses it wasn't any one thing get involved baby step it do what you must, but get involved. Don't hide out. Don't wait for it to get better. You have to take action. And the toughest thing to do is get off the couch. So all I can ask anyone to do is get your ass off the couch. Find whatever motivation you need to. Don't do it alone. Call a friend. Call somebody. Take action. This is your call to action. Don't wait for tomorrow. You know. Amen to that. There's way too many people are willing to help. Amen to that. Well, thanks so much, Norman. I, I really appreciate you being on the show and sharing your story with us. Um, as I close up the show, uh, I always talk about life's a journey, and sometimes it can be a struggle, but there's always somebody, something, somewhere out there that wants to help you out. So make sure that you've researched uh, online, uh, wherever you get your, your research done, just make sure that you, you go out and reach out for some help. Um, they say that post-traumatic stress is a silent killer, but there are ways of healing. So if you'd like more information on this podcast, uh, please log on to our website, operationhealingheroes.org. And until next week, when we speak to another veteran and share their story, um, we can't wait to, uh, to share additional veteran stories and also talk to family members and understand how PTS affects them. Um, thanks for tuning in. And until next week, we'll talk to you soon. 
This week's Veterans Resource Nonprofit of the Week is Healing Wave Aquatics. The mission of Healing Wave Aquatics is to support individual wellness and management of complex stress through aquatic therapy. We provide a research-based aquatic therapy program to military and veterans who have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress through an eight-week program. The therapy uses the property of water, including warmth, buoyancy, and fluid movements to help veterans heal from physical, mental, and other traumas and medical conditions. This treatment thoroughly stretches, expands, and supports the spine and body while promoting a sense of peace and relaxation so complete that the recipient tends to surrender and release tensions that enable the body and mind to move beyond the limitations that gravity or fear would otherwise impose. Visit www.healingwaveaquatics.org for more information. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com and by Great Clips, the world's largest salon brand with over 4,400 locations in the U.S. and Canada. Great Clips, it's gonna be great.